Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to the HBO official Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say Flash, you say Thunder. Episode 8, The Last Patrol. The episode in which Captain Winters tells a lie. And a pivotal instalment in the series, in that it marks the beginning of the end. As the real-life Dick Winters insinuates himself during the interviews that play, at the top of the show. You have a feeling you're going to live through the war. You have a feeling it's starting to ease off. Uh, You can't account for it. It's just a gut feeling, but everybody had that feeling. I believe I might be able to live through it. So walk carefully. Take care of yourself. The episode begins February 9th, 1945, in Hagenau, France. And it's narrated by aspiring writer and Harvard-educated private first-class David Webster, played by Ian Bailey, who returns from four months in hospital after being wounded during Operation Market Garden. Must have liked that hospital, because we left Holland four months ago. Well, I wasn't there the whole time. There was rehabilitation, then the replacement depot. Well, I'm sure he tried to bust out and help us in Bastogne, Webb. I don't know how I would have done that. It's funny because Popeye found a way. The derision the men display towards Webster for his absence in that hellscape baston is matched only by their dismissiveness towards replacements. Like First Lieutenant Henry Jones, played by the baby-faced Colin Hanks. Request permission to go on the patrol. Here's your answer. No, you don't have an experience. It's that patrol, a daring nighttime raid in which 15 men are dispatched across the river with the goal of taking German prisoners for intelligence purposes, that gives Private Webster and Lieutenant Jones the chance to prove themselves. And despite the mission's chaos. And the excruciating loss of Private Jackson. A prisoner is captured, enough for Colonel Sink to double down and want to go again. But Major Winters, seeing what the war has done to his men, who've been hollowed out by what they saw and experienced in Baston, and characteristically turns a blind eye to the chain of command, and instructs him to rest up and simply report they were unable to secure any prisoners on this supposed mission. A decision that allows the men of Easy Company to believe in something that must have seemed so unbelievable in the blood and terror-filled months that have led to this moment. 
As we pulled out of Hagenau, many of us in Easy Company felt that a corner had been turned, and we all might make it home alive. My guest today is the red-haired wonder who brought Oregon native Donald Malarkey to life. Yes, that Luger-obsessive technical sergeant who served more consecutive time on the front lines than any other member of Easy Company, earning a Bronze Star and the French Legion of Honor medal in the process. Malarkey's character arc, from an ebullient spark plug who joyrides his motorcycle around the English countryside to the broken de facto platoon leader at Hagenau is one of the most nuanced and heartbreaking in the entire series. It's a joy to welcome the gent who portrayed it all with such deft skill, Mr. Scott Grimes. Hello, Roger. Thank you, you beautiful bastard. I appreciate you having me on, seriously. (laughs) It's it's a joy (laughs) to have you on, Scott, because your career started early and wonderfully out of Drake Up, Massachusetts. You became a 1980s child star playing in Who's the Boss and built that into a movie and television career. I love how you once described your style as a character actor. You said 30 years ago, a character actor was someone you didn't know their name. Hollywood's writing roles for characters now and then knocking it out of the park. I'm proud of it. I'm a character actor. I'll be the redheaded best friend in anything you want me to be. First of all, I don't have a choice, really, about the redheaded part anyway. <laughs> we're either evil or we're the best friend. But then all of a sudden, these great redheads started winning awards. And I'm like, maybe I can stick around. <laughs> you and Damian Lewis, we can do it all. <laughs> Gingy Avengers assemble. And so your band, The Brothers Journey, began. I want to go back to that beginning because you were in the mm-hmm. magnificent party of five playing Will McCorkill. And Party of Five's casting director only happened to be the legendary Meg Lieberman. My lord, Meg did it all. She did war miniseries. She did teen dramas. Did she have malarkey in mind for you from the off? (laughs) What really happened first is Matthew Fox, who was on Party of Five and went on to do Lost. He wanted to do Band of Brothers so bad and he couldn't because of his obligation to Party of Five. He was the star of it. And he told me about Band of Brothers and I then called Meg and Meg was like, oh, yeah. Because you have to remind these people sometimes that you're around, especially if you're working. They forget about you. Oh, he's working. I got him on a show. I went and I read for Meg, and I think halfway through my audition, she was like, okay, I got to call and get you into the Tom Hanks uh, version of these auditions. So it happened real quick. God bless you, Matthew Fox, and God bless you, Meg Lieberman. She takes you to Hanks. Yeah. But you took your shot because you looked at the character Malarkey. You were like, this is a guy that is prone to love a song. Tell us what you did, Scott. I did. Magnificent. (laughs) So thanks. So back then, we now don't even burn CDs anymore. Back then, to burn a CD took what felt like 12 hours, right? And a small fortune. Exactly. So I bought this CD burner, and I bought a CD, and I recorded this song on this little system I had, and I recorded Oh Danny Boy, because I thought, hey, malarkey, sounds Irish. And I think also in the original script that I still have in my garage, it said in the description of malarkey, something about he loves to sing. It never really happened within the project. John Olof told us that was the only note that Tom Hanks had for him on episode two was cut the singing. Oh, really? Olof originally must have had Malarkey's greatest hits in there, which you then recorded now, which only lives on in Scott Grimes' garage. When I walked in, first of all, I have to tell you, this is Tom Hanks. He was sitting there on with a yellow legal pad writing down things. 
and he didn't look up for a second. I was like, that's, I mean, that's rude. You know, <laughs> I just walked into the room. Not that I'm anybody, but now I'm nervous as it is. It's Tom Hanks. And he kept looking down on this notepad and he kept writing, holds his finger up like, give me one second. This is really important. So I'm like, oh, okay. And then he says out loud, fire the pool, man. <laughs> he broke the ice, man, with this wonderful joke. Immediately got me comfortable. I waited till the way out, but I handed Tom Hanks this CD. Essentially, you thought you were setting yourself amongst all the malarkeys as deeply singular. You thought you'd won the day. Oh, yeah. I thought it was a done deal. And I said, nobody can do what I just did and burn a CD. <laughs> Young actors listening, just make a note. CD burners, they are your future. <laughs> but then you go to the big cattle call. Oh, God. Just as you said that big cattle call, still to this day, 20 years later, I got little chilly willies inside my chest because it was... <gasps> I was so scared that day. Something I've never experienced before or after. This large amount of amazing actors. Some of them, I'll never forget, Rick Schroeder was there. You know, like Ricky Schroeder. And he was starring on NYPD Blue at the time. I'll never forget Frank John Hughes looking at me and going, does this mean if I don't get this, I can be on NYPD Blue and replace him? Because you're thinking, <laughs> why are all these people here who are working and David Schwimmer and all the things? You're like, how is this possible? And everybody's going in and everybody's going in a number of times. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And I see the other malarkeys. And there was a guy from Saving Private Ryan that had red, red hair. And I'm like, oh, I'm screwed because they had done that together. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And everybody's going in. And, you know, Donnie Wahlberg's going in two or three times. And I just never went in. What must have been going through your head just sitting there like the last kid to be picked on the schoolyard? I was 100% sure I didn't have the part, that it wasn't my role, right? At the very end of the day, four hours later, they bring in a group and they call me in. When I did go in, I was like, <laughs> fuck it, I got nothing to lose. I was with a great group of guys. I remember, uh, <laughs> here's a blooper from it. There was an actor in that room that didn't end up doing Band of Brothers, who was just trying to outshine everybody. He was just overacting. And, and there was a line about an old camel cigarettes where, you know, remember that rumor that there was a penis on the camel package of a guy taking a piss, right? If you don't know what Scott's talking about, go yeah. to Google right now. We'll <laughs> yeah, wait. Exactly. Go yeah, on, exactly. Scott. So after this guy is just destroying everybody, he's making fun of everybody, he's improving, and it's just not going well. And uh, remember, his line was, He's supposed to look at the pack of camels and goes, where's the dick? And Donnie Wahlberg improvised and pointed at this actor and went, he's right there. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And everybody laughed. It broke the ice. One of the greatest rooms I've ever had the privilege of being in. Obviously, Steven Spielberg was walking around with a video camera. Not really directing us, being the cameraman, which again, sounds like intimidating, but it was not at all. It really calmed you down. Like here's Spielberg with a video camera coming around you and doing a close up on you. And he's so excited that his excitement just bled through the room. It was lovely. The only couple, three or four or five times I've spoken to Spielberg, he has a conversation with you that just relaxes you. I had a conversation with him once while we were doing Band of Brothers, and he told me how afraid of planes he was. So he bought this plane that travels at 52,000 feet where there's no turbulence. You know, I'm like, how do you relate to Spielberg when he's talking about a $300 million plane he's got? But he can do it. It's the strangest thing. He can relax you, and he loves to talk about movies. And in that room, you just felt that man who was really good at making actors be the best that they could in that moment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. 
Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I mean, you had Malarkey sing Oh Danny Boy, but this was Scott Grimes really channeling mm. Eminem, Lose Yourself. You knew you had one <laughs> shot, one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted. Nice. And in one moment, I mean, you really went and captured it. Can you tell us about your own performance in that room in that moment? Well, a lot of it had to do with the guys, too, the fellas that I realize it now. Tom and Steven had figured out by then that those were going to be the guys. So they brought them in last to go. This is cool. Look at this combination. So that helped a lot. Camaraderie between all these actors in the same boat. But I also realized that when I went in, I only went in once because I had the part when I handed Tom the, the CD, maybe. And I was put on tape and maybe Steven watched that. And maybe they said, well, yeah, to him. We still got a chemistry read for everybody. So I realized that when I walked in, I went, I think this is my part to lose. So I think I have this. How do you understand that they chose you? Because as you noted... Shortly after they gave you the part, you look nothing like the real Malarkey. In your own words, he's blonde and blue-eyed and gorgeous. During the audition process, I actually, whether I've said this before or not, I'm going to go back on it. I didn't care at the time because I really, truly thought, I think Spielberg thought this and Tom thought this, that if your name's Malarkey, you got to look a little Irish. You have to. I think a ginger is important. So at the time, I didn't care. It was later on when the Malarkey family... <laughs> were were mildly disappointed when I was cast. Now, I luckily had the honor and privilege to change their minds through portraying their father and grandfather. But at the time, I think it was the premiere of Band of Brothers. I went back to the hotel afterwards with the family and we had a drink and we popped some champagne. One of the daughters, she grabbed me by the shoulder. She's like, you know, when we found out it was you playing our dad, we were so pissed. <laughs> Because you look nothing like him. We thought Brad Pitt should play him. And I'm like, okay. She's like, but we love you because you brought this attention and this great. She ended up complimenting me, but they were not happy. <laughs> they said they loved you because you were friendly and funny. And that was like the core of the portrayal, even though, quote, you were a ginger that looked nothing <laughs> like him. Which is a really ginger, that's right. That's what they said. And I hated that word at the time. But when it comes out in humor like that, I don't mind it. But I loved the energy of however I portrayed Malarkey brought more attention to him. In a show like Band of Brothers, when there's 500 speaking roles, that's all you can ask for, right? Is to get a little bit more attention through the story, through the writing, and maybe through your energy to give a little bit more attention to their father, grandfather, brother, son. The real Malarkey was still alive when you were preparing <laughs> to play the character, but you found it hard to engage with him. You reached out to him a couple of times via phone, I believe three or four times. Tell us what happened. Well, I had first heard from Richard Spate that he called Malarkey because he wanted to find out about Muck because Muck had died, so he didn't really have a ton of information. So Richard Spate warned me and said, uh, I got hung up on by Don Malarkey. So I was really nervous and I called him the first time. And he answered, and he told me specifically, I don't want to talk about anything yet. And I said, okay, but can I, can I ask you a couple questions? And he hung up on me. He was not being rude. And I could get emotional right now talking about it. I am. Every time he got even the tinge of emotion or started to cry, 
Who the hell am I? He, I don't need to see that. He doesn't want to show me that. We don't know each other. He would hang up. God bless him for doing that because I would too. He wants to share it with some actor that doesn't look anything like him. <laughs> and so the first couple conversations were not good. And then I just said, well, I just have a question for you. And the first question he finally answered, I said, did you smoke? And he couldn't hear me. It was very hard of hearing. And he said, what? I said, did you smoke? And I was really hoping that he said no, because I was not a smoker. His quote, like a fucking chimney. So I was like, well, shit, now I got to smoke, which was fine. Everybody else was smoking. That broke the ice. I think he just started to see my desire to tell the story correctly. So when he saw how interested I was, he trusted me to tell his truth. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the layers of this story. This is a man who would return to Oregon, become an insurance and real estate agent. He was a very private man. Even to his family, they said he rarely spoke of his war experiences. And for you, every time you, for at least a year, tried to speak to him, you get emotional. Yeah. You actually came to believe or understand that emotion was because he was alive and that some of his best friends, like Skip Muck, who'd been killed at the Battle of the Bulge, had died right in front of him. It is that guilt of surviving. And he, more than anybody, like Bill Garnier... Him and Babe Heffron, they had it together. They were, we're going to do this. We're going to tell our story. We're going to be strong about it because that was their way of dealing with whatever they had inside. And Don Malarkey's way was to uh, feel that guilt. And he had one of those cries, Raj, heartbreaking. Like that cry that is so deep that you feel bad that he's now stuck with you in front of him because I can't comfort that. You just try to hug him or shake his hand and it was tough to watch. And years later, when I got to go on tour with these guys and do publicity things and stay in hotels with them, watching him allow himself to cry while still speaking about this was so therapeutic for him. You know, even though he was still broken by his experiences, he did begin to open up to you. I'm fascinated. What was the main lesson, Scott, that you took from your conversations? Listen, <laughs> I learn every single day from that project and Don Malarkey. If anything, Raj, I don't feel I helped him. I feel like he helped me. I then get guilty like, well, shit, I didn't help this guy at all. I, I made him talk about something he didn't want to talk about. Now I get it. We talked about the therapy part of it. But the only lesson I ever got from Don Malarkey, one of a thousand, by the way, just as far as who he is as a person, but is I will never be Don Malarkey. I would sit there and stare at a man that I knew I could never be like, and they had this aura around them. You could feel it and their strength. You were so glad that they were giving you their time, you know? <laughs> there was a true decency to Malarkey as well. I've yeah. seen when Malarkey pays for the laundry of the men that didn't make it back after D-Day. Oh, um, private? Yes, ma'am. Lieutenant Mion's one of yours, isn't he? I hope he hasn't forgotten his laundry. I'll take it. Thank you. Even amidst his own anguish, the sweet side of the man just constantly comes through. But I do need to know, because you knew him, Stephen Ambrose wrote about just how badly Malarkey wanted a Luger. Indeed, at Braycourt Manor, he ran 30 yards out into the open in a field being raked by machine gun fire to try and grab one. Did you ever talk to him about the Luger lust that he had? I did. I did. He always tried to underplay anything that sounded dramatic even though the story is absolutely true everybody wanted a luger was his answer he was like it wasn't just me 
but his story is specific. I think one of those dead crowds has a luger! A what? It was much closer, he said, than in the movie. Didn't have to run that far. Now you stop firing! Beautiful! And he couldn't believe that he wasn't being fired at, and then he realized... Christ, they must think he's a medic or something! He's gonna need a goddamn medic! And when he tells it, it's great. He says, I ran out there. Nobody did anything. It wasn't a Luger. Shit. Now he has to get back. Because he knew he's like, well, I fooled them once. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Malarkey! <laughs> Stay low! And he said that he was really happy that the way that was portrayed because it was almost exact. He said, I was an idiot for doing that. That was the dumbest thing I've ever done. Mike, I think you're good. You're here and it made for good television. It's not relative at all. I always say this, but my fear is still mine, right? I've never been in the position to do what these guys did, but I've been in scared situations as an actor when you're about to do that take that you're running back. There's a special effects guy watching your feet and the second your foot lifts up, he's gonna fire that squib behind you. A squib being a small real life explosive used by special effects departments in films. If you land on a squib, it can still blow a hole in you. I was really nervous. That fall, it's become a weird famous Band of Brothers picture of me on the ground with my rifle in the air. I fell by accident. I slipped on some mud, the fear on my face isn't acting. I'm like, this guy's going to blow a bunch of holes in me with these squibs that are underneath me. He didn't. He was awesome. He saw me fall and he waited. And I'll never forget Captain Dale Dye came up to me after I shot that. He goes, come here. And we went over to the monitor and he said, look at you putting your rifle in the air instead of in the ground. He was proud of me. I was like, Captain's proud of me. (laughs) Let's talk about boot camp. The infamous Band of Brothers pre-production trial by fire that so many of the actors went through. We've talked to a lot of the cast about the impact of that experience, their bonding, their portrayals. But you've said something fascinating though, Scott. I've heard you talk about how as an actor, you prepared physically to get into the best shape of your life Mm -hmm. just to be able to quote, fake kicking ass. Every guy will tell you in Band of Brothers that it's always been tough. 20 years going by, it's a little easier to make anything about yourself and try to take attention away from those guys, right? Easy company. The real dudes that did what they did. But I will say this. Boot camp was an experience that I'm proud to talk about myself because it was our version. It was a boot camp. I was not pretending. I went there thinking, okay, we're going to pretend. We're going to read our scripts every night. We're going to rehearse. We're going to do fight scenes and pretend. No, this was boot camp. It was real. You've said that you could prepare physically for boot camp, but not mentally. No. Because when you got there, it was, quote, the dreariest and rainiest year in England's history. And that rain helped us get into the depression of it all. The rain helped us in boot camp. It was absolutely miserable. But I will tell you this. Falling asleep that first night was the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. I discovered a lot about myself that it was all about control for me, that boot camp. My back hurt. I was a hockey player. I had bad back. I tried to control it by going, if my back hurts, I'm going to lay down when I feel like it. And then I realized, wait a minute, Grimes, what are you doing? Don Malarkey wouldn't have been like, my back hurts. I can't fight. You know, I can't. Uh-uh. 
So once I had that moment of Scott Grimes trying to control the situation, I never tried to do it again. I jumped in physically, mentally, yeah, the mental part. The only thing that made the mental part good for me is I like to help other people. And I like to do that because it makes me not think or worry myself. If I help other people, I don't have to think of how scared I am right now or how exhausted I am. And the camaraderie, and lots of guys did this, to come together, and that's what Captain Dale died did so well, to be there for each other is what got us through those miserable, miserable nights and days of boot camp. We've heard that a number of the American actors were shocked to arrive and find out that there were tons of British actors faking American accents, taking parts from American talent. Mm. And at first, a number found it hard to take. I never had a problem with that. In fact, I was the opposite. I knew, one, that British actors are excellent and they have a depth about them. So does Tom and Stephen. But I think there were 11 or 13 American actors who were the kind of regulars in Band of Brothers. I felt honored that I was one of the minority. We were. I got picked to be one of the American actors actually in this because if you look at it, man, there are more British actors in Band of Brothers than American actors by far. So I saw it in the other way. A badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. And... The guys, majority of them were so good at their accents that it quickly, I couldn't tell the difference. I'm like, where are you from? And he'd be like, I'm from Leeds. I'm like, what? You sound like you're from Florida. Again, when you experience that with these people, 50 guys, I think, went to boot camp. You didn't care where they were from by the end. You were all in this together, telling a great story of this wonderful company. There was another element of boot camp that set a tone. You've said there and during the actual production, Hanks and Spielberg's modus at times was to make the cast so fractious, so miserable, so tired, so angry with the grueling conditions that it would encourage anger and suffering to come through in your portrayals. 100%. When we got to boot camp again, this one of the scariest days because you're getting on these buses and you're being completely, oh God, they were just screaming at you. And then I got to camp Longmore. Here's Tom Hanks growing his beard and hair for the second part of Castaway. He looks like a freak. And Spielberg, their speeches were, this is not about you. Get up right now if you make it about you. And they did it in such a beautiful way that scared the crap out of me. You know, we had the rules where we couldn't go to our trailers. There was a lot of great rules that, looking back, had a lot to do with we were miserable. But again, Raj, if you're miserable together... You come together and it's a great way to be miserable if you're also looking around and other people are miserable, you know. Collective misery, that's what yeah. wins the Emmys. Yeah. Uh, Captain Dale Dye, the show's military advisor, he also told us that behind the scenes they really did try and engender an anger between the original cast and the actors who were playing the replacements. Yes. It started with who went to boot camp and who didn't. Weirdly enough, it was your right going through this and being there for as long as you had so that when anybody came in, you had to treat them crappy. We knew how to do it because it had been done to us. I would not want to be treated that way, so I chose not to, but it was so much fun to watch. <laughs> but I did feel bad for people like James McAvoy. I don't anymore. When those guys came in, they were treated horribly. Just these guys did not want them there. And it was so fun to watch the cadre enjoy watching us do it to other people coming in. We were like their students and it worked. They loved watching us do that. Which is a great pivot into episode eight, The Last mm. Patrol. Can I just say, big picture, everyone in the cast seems utterly shattered throughout this episode. Even the replacements who just arrived. 
how was it behind the scenes at this time? You know, deeper into the Band of Brothers production, were you all just exhausted, beat up, mentally and physically ground down? Yes. Again, the weather had a huge thing to do with that for that whole year. It was miserable. The British guys were apologizing to us. So the weather had a lot to do with it. We were beaten down. We were hurt because we did episode eight last. I'd love to talk to Tom and Steven someday about if that was just a wonderful coincidence, even though there's two other episodes after that. But those two other episodes, the weather was better. The concept of nine and ten is the war's ending. There's that weight that's coming off of it, except for the concentration camp. But episode eight coincidentally was at the end and we were freaking miserable we wanted to go home we wanted to see our families when you'd work on something for nine months anything that you do for nine months my goodness but now i look back and go what a beautiful thing that was just accidentally because the episode is all about combat fatigue scott no one appears to be suffering more than malarkey at this point what did hair and makeup do to you because they did die out the ginger right they darkened my hair a bit but there's scenes where it looks red and there's scenes where it looks dark. It's weird that my hair doesn't hold dye that well, but never forget. <laughs> Captain Dale Dye had a huge problem with me having a beard. I said, but I need to keep the beard. The beard looks miserable and I look older. The second I shave this thing, I'm going to look 17 years old again. And the audience, they'll just see this young faced kid. I knew the beard was necessary. And I had a horrible beard at the time. It grew in patches and it was ugly. And You look like a hollowed out 1975 Springsteen with that scraggly beard and wool cap. I had this thing on my eye, this broken blood vessel. Through half the production, they didn't cover it up. So you use these things that you had, these kind of gross things that you maybe had on you to sell the miserableness of it. Malaki's weathered experience is in stark contrast to fresh-faced, newly arrived First Lieutenant Henry Jones, played by Colin Hanks. Lieutenant Jones, sir. Ryder, West Pointer. Yes, sir. When'd you graduate? June 6th, sir. June 6th? Of last year? D-Day, yes, sir. Uh, all right, don't get hurt. Straight out of West Point Military Academy, keen-eyed, bushy-tailed, eager to see action, the kind of gunko naivete that gets kicked out of you instantly on the field of battle. How did the producers introduce him behind the scenes to you? I'd love to know when you first met. You know, was he one of the newcomer actors they encouraged you to ice? Yes, but there was a problem there because you're like, wait a minute, do we abuse our boss's son? <laughs> he wanted everybody to know that he wasn't there because he was Tom Hanks' son. And we immediately knew that because he was, one, he was very good. And two, he was just, he dove in with all the abuse quickly. He took it. I decided because of our episode, it was already in the episode. I decided to not take him under my wing per se, because he's a terrific actor, but take him under my wing and teach him what this is like. I'm like, dude, Ross McCall is going to come up and make you do push-ups. He's just going to do the push-ups. And so I think I helped him. He's part of this, man. We forget that Colin is in one episode. It was such a good sport and such a good addition as an actor to Band of Brothers. So we forget that he's only in one. And his role was so integral in showing these guys as opposed to those guys the new guys i'm gonna brag for a second there's a moment in eight when we're standing at this window him and i and i improvised one of those moments that describes it all i take it this was already an outpost when you arrived mm. there were some doggies from the 79th infantry but they left in a hurry what's the report on enemy activity expect some flares a few mortars at night 
Scattered 88, snipers during the day. Yeah, we dodged some mortars on our way in. Mm. And I always love that moment because that sold it to me. That's like the new guy excited that he was bragging about maybe somebody shot at him and the weathered guy going, welcome to my last two fucking years, man. There's that incredible scene where Bill Keen dies carrying a sack of potatoes from one room to another, almost by mm-hmm. chance, which triggers Webster's meditation on the role of coincidence and fate in war. In war, soldiers sometimes die in the fever pitch of a firefighter by artillery when they're huddled in a foxhole. Bill Keen, a Tacoa man, was killed because he was carrying a sack of potatoes from one building into another. In the wrong place at the wrong time. Jackson. He was dead before Doc Rowe even heard the call for a medic. Easy Company then huddle around the dead Bill Keen for a moment. Mm-hmm. And you, Malarkey, that scene, you look on with no emotion. You just tell James Moali. Hey, let's go. Let's get out of here. Yeah. This is a man who's seen so much death. Death now makes no impact on him at all. That is a perfect example of one guy that's seen a lot and another guy that hasn't. But George Khalil, who played Allie, Michael Fassbender. Oh, Fassbender playing Sergeant Christensen. They were underused because they were wonderful actors, obviously. Michael Fassbender's gone on and done a couple things. (laughs) On the day of filming, I forget who it was. It might have been Ian Bailey or Colin Hanks said, we need to give this to these guys. So it wasn't written. I don't believe that Allie was the one that stood there with that look on his face of, I'm looking at death. I'm looking at this crushed human being. It was during production at that point where we wanted to give guys things to do so that they felt at the end of Bender Brothers, I was used because they had worked so hard. And then to leave on George Khalil's face and Malarkey, you're right, going like, hey man, you can stare at it all you want. It's never going to leave you. So let's get a shower. It's incredible to witness these early scenes, particularly when Malarkey thinks he's going to lead the patrol, even though he is utterly broken inside. And I will say that kind of leadership is just a different level of courage and I can ever even fathom, never mind aspire to. Can't believe they're going to make Malachi lead it. Christ, he only lost his five best friends. What the fuck's he got to look for? Then that scene of you in the shower under the steaming spigot, only a few seconds long. But my God, Scott, you say so much. Just inside of you, there's such a darkness that can never be scrubbed clean. What was that scene like to shoot? It was quiet, first of all. Nobody spoke to me, including like the actors, because it was written like this is a huge moment. And instead of having lines, what has to sell it is the look on this person's face. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we did a rehearsal and we did one shot at it. So what you're seeing is the only take that we did. And I think the director knew that once you did it more than once, you were then asking someone to fake it. And then the water coming over your head and thank God the water was hot because if I had to fake it with the cold, it wouldn't, again, it would have been totally different. I remember I had a toothache on the day, which probably helped a lot too. The elements accidentally, again, made that moment. You couldn't do it again if you tried. I loved once you were asked about it, you said you use the water, that first touch of water, and you let your mind think about the weight of the darkness surging front of mind for malarkey after repressing it for so long. When I watch it now, knowing where I was, it's almost like for me, the water is cleaning away the sadness. Please clean away the memories that I have in my head that I watched last week. You know, that water is almost like a cleansing. In the original script, I believe Malarkey was going to lead the night patrol. But then someone got a call from the real Malarkey who said, (laughs) I did not go on that patrol. And this is an actor 
God, you were lucky you avoided three weeks of night shoots in the rain on the water. By the way, I called him because I was literally like, I don't want to do these three weeks of night shoots, man. Obviously, I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Malaki, you got to get me out of here. you got to get me out of oh this. Oh, my gosh. And he said, no, no, I was not on that patrol. I was like, I think I muted the phone. I was like, thank God. <laughs> Those guys. Wow, that was a miserable, miserable time for them because it was cold and they're in the water. And then the, if you remember, once they go across and come back, it's just chaos. I was just so thrilled to not have to uh, go on that. That was uh, a gift. Even though the patrol was a relative success, when Colonel Sink orders a second one, Winter's lies like everyone else he's over the needless death and destruction yeah it was a massive step for him in episode eight to take as a leader to admit to his men that he's not following orders how do you understand it it was who winters was i'm going to give damian lewis amazing props because it's one of the best acting moments in band of brothers and he does it with his voice he does it with his face as a leader makes a decision want you all to get a full night's sleep tonight means in the morning, you will report to me that you made it across the river into German lines. We're unable to secure any live prisoners. Understand? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good. Look sharp for tomorrow. Moving off the line. (laughs) (laughs) Moving off the line. What a beautiful gift that is to give to these men. But how many did we lose on the first patrol? One. As the war's winding down, that's one more than we should. And you know that you're going to lose another one. Who's it going to be? I thought that that was a beautiful moment. And hearing the men afterwards talk about winters and that decision he could do anything to them after that as a person as the years went by whether they got along and they always went one of us is still here because of that or two of us or three of us that one sticks with me yeah scott you finally met the real malarkey in person for the first time i believe at the hollywood bowl at one of the Mm -hmm. premieres what was it like meeting the man himself were you nervous I was very nervous. My hand still hurts because he has one of the strongest handshakes you will ever. I'm glad I didn't go in for the hug. You know, he's just a strong man and doesn't do it to intimidate you. It's just who he is. I will never forget shaking his hand, feeling the strength of his hand and almost like a Spock mind meld thing, feeling what that hand has been through what that hand did. There was something tactile to me about touching Don Malarkey's hand having heard about him, playing him, talking to him, and then touching him, you're like, oh, wow, this is meeting an idol. I mean, he was some kind of hero. And when war broke out, he was at college at the time at the University of Oregon. Pearl Harbor occurred and he attempted to immediately enlist, but was rejected by both the Marines and the Army Air Corps because of dental issues. But once drafted, he volunteered for the paratroopers, which was a bold thing to do, Mm. like so many of the men of Easy Company. His first time in a plane, he jumped out of it. (laughs) It's hard to imagine the depth of his courage. 
That says it all right there. The first time in a plane, you jump out of it. These men were asked to do something that no one had ever done before, really. Paratroopers existed before, but this was a different version of that. We were elevating it. That's just who these guys were. They're like, yeah, I'll volunteer for this new thing that no one's really ever done, and we don't know if it's going to work or not. You're a hero for being in the war, first of all. The strength and heroism it takes to then do this new thing, right? To be part of Airborne is unbelievable. I don't think I'd ever have that in me, but Don Malarkey did. There was a courage, but there's also an incredible humility to the man. I believe that one of the only things you objected to in the script for Band of Brothers was the ninth episode. Mm -hmm. Easy Company encountered the Kaufering concentration camp and he was upset that you were in the scenes. He Mm -hmm. said, I wasn't there. And he was ticked off that he was in those scenes because he didn't want to take any credit for something other men did. He had the flu that day that they liberated that camp. And it's a quick shot of me. I'm walking and I have a mask on because of the smell. And it's one quick shot. And he saw it and he wasn't disappointed in me. I didn't feel like he was angry. But there were men that died and aren't there anymore. So he didn't want to take credit for anything he didn't do. And on top of that, there was one scene at the end where they're playing baseball that he's not in. And he's not in that scene because I missed the plane. I was so jet lagged. I missed the freaking plane to go to Switzerland. I got on a train. It took a train all the way to Switzerland, but didn't get there in time to film that baseball scene. And that was so so disappointing to me and him. He was like, why aren't I in that? But I think we made it okay when Damien and me and Donnie have that scene. So it's an airborne exhibition. They have one of every allied combat plane they've used in the war. Uh-huh. I mean, yes, sir. You'll be like a technical advisor and make sure they get everything right. I understand, sir. Sorry, it's not a more hospitable location. <laughs> no, sir. Paris is, is just fine. If you, need, if you need me to go, someone has to be there. Yeah, we do. We absolutely do. And your driver will drop you off at a hotel of your choice. And um, I don't think we'll see you back here anytime soon. I won't let you down, sir. He went on to carve out a career in Portland, Oregon, in insurance and real estate. He self-described as, for a long time, a walking shell. But he did manage to live to the age of 96, passing away in September 2017, one of the last of Easy Company to pass on. But his family admitted he never lost the feeling of being haunted by his memories of combat, the friends he lost along the way. But they did admit that the release of Band of Brothers, your performance, was cathartic for him, helped him come to terms at last with the emotional scars of the battle. Well, as you're describing it, it's making me tear up because, you know, all I can hope for when you start a project like that is that at the end, the man that did all those things gave me a thumbs up, you know, and I'm sorry, that's... And I do know that I can sit here... Uh, in front of you and and I know he made me a better man first of all my parents have told me that they said you came back with a level of strength and honor I guess how you treat people how you respect people sorry man this is and uh, all I can ask for is that his family and him were proud of what I accomplished and I'm very proud when I'm walking down the street and someone comes up to me I get saluted I never allow it because I'm like guys stop you can't salute me But I'm being saluted 
but I'm not being saluted. Don Malarkey's being saluted, so I take it now and I go, I'll pass that on to his family. Don Malarkey deserves all of that, all of the salutes, and I'm proud to have been a small part of showing people who he was. There is something about this show, about these roles, about what you've done through your portrayal, not just for the massive audience that Band of Brothers has found, but in your case, for the very war hero you portrayed. Is that what makes this such a singular experience? Yes. You know, when I watch the laundry room scene, I look at it and I watch Don Malarkey walk in and the woman says, I have these other packages of laundry. And she starts listing off the names of the deceased. Sergeant Evans, Private Moyer, Blozer, Gray, Miller, Owen, Collins, Elliot, Blythe. And I look at that actor up there, me, and I point to it and I go, I don't know how I did that. I don't know how that emotion, I was trying to be my best, was lucky to have that beautiful scene. But I look at it now and go, I don't know who that person is. So you got to thank Tom, Stephen, Dale Dye, and my brothers for putting me in a headspace to carry that and to show that weight. Because it's all about the weight of Band of Brothers. War, obviously, in general, you carry that weight. And us as actors had to portray that somehow. And how do you fake that? You can't. And we were so lucky and unlucky to be miserable with each other. <laughs> I'm going to close with an incredible quote from Malarkey himself, because he ended up writing his own memoir, which I encourage every listener to track down. It was released 49 years after Camp Tekoa. And Malarkey wrote, So this was the beginning of the most momentous experience of my life as a member of Easy Company. There's not a day that's passed since that I do not thank Adolf Hitler for allowing me to be associated with the most talented and inspiring group of men that I've ever known. What do you take from his life when he says things like that, Scott? You've met him, Malarkey, out of total darkness, and he did experience total darkness. Out of yeah. total darkness, something good can still come. Especially from him who hid it for so many years from his family, from himself. For him to say something like that, malarkey, again, there's Garnier, there's Babe, there's the people that were really energetic and wanting to tell their story. And malarkey just didn't want to, but had to eventually. And what I take from that quote and from him is so happy that he got the opportunity in his life to get it out, to finally tell his story in the way that he was proud of and get to sit there and hold hands with his family. I have this vision in my head of either his daughter or somebody telling me that now we can sit and listen to these stories, good and bad. He's proud of what he did. And the last thing you ever want is a man that did so much for this country and the world and his family to have to hide that or feel ashamed about it or feel guilty about it. And I'm really glad that he got to live 20 years, especially being a hero that he should have lived long before then. Thanks to you and thank you for your portrayal and bringing Donald Malarkey to life. And thank you for letting me talk about him because he deserves it. 
Coming up on the next HBO Band of Brothers podcast, we travel with Easy Company into Germany for the series' emotional gut punch and a sobering reminder of why we fight. Was ist das hier? Das, 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 das hier? Das, das ist ein Arbeitslager für, 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 für Unerwünschte, wirklich. He says it's a work camp for a Unerwünschte. I'm not sure what the word means, sir. Unwanted, uh, disliked, maybe. Criminals? I don't think criminals, sir. Uh, Verbrecher. Verbrecher? Nein, nein. No. Ärzte, Musiker, Beamte, Bauern, Doctors, Musicians, Schreiber, Schneider, Intellektuelle. Clerks, farmers, intellectuals, I mean, normal people. Juden. 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 We will hear from Ross McCall, the actor whose portrayal of technician fifth grade Joseph Liebgott carries so much of that emotional weight. And we'll welcome back Why We Fight's writer, the mighty John Orloff, to contextualise the episode's legacy. I've been told by people at the Holocaust Museum, the national one in DC, when they randomly say, how did you first hear about the Holocaust? That Band of Brothers is the number one answer. Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. And a reminder, as if you needed one, that you can watch The Last Patrol and every episode of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time. Karahe! Karahe!